Today's first scripture reading comes from the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 6, this comes from a part of Luke's gospel that we uh, refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus then went down with them and stood on a level place. And a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were healed. And the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. So looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject you. And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So I have been uh, reading all about woodlands in North America. Um, a while back, I read an article, and it has just got me deep down the rabbit hole of uh, woodlands in North America. And it is fascinating to me how many correlations there are between a healthy woodland here east of Mississippi River, north of the Mason-Dixon line in North America, and a healthy spiritual life for us. On Ash Wednesday, if you were here, we talked about how the difference between a woodland and a forest is that a woodland is full of life. A forest, there's some life up at the canopy where the sun reaches, but the shadows and the lack of light hitting the ground makes it so that forests aren't really full of life. But that if you want to increase the life in your forest, you turn into a woodland by cutting out the biggest, gnarliest trees you can find and allowing more light to reach the forest floor. So we've talked about Lent as a time where we cut out these big, gnarly trees in our lives, the things that keep us on this superficial level with God and don't allow the light and love of God to penetrate deep, to grow something fruitful within us. You know, uh, Dr. Craig Harper, who's a, um, a forestry professor at the University of Tennessee, he says, um, you get ten times as much uh, food, as much you know, growth that animals can eat in a woodland than you do from a forest. Even a forest full of nut trees, the food, what, the, what can sustain life in a woodland is ten times greater. So we've been, so on Ash Wednesday we talked about, you know, removing these, uh, these big, gnarly 
oak trees in our lives to allow God's space to come and bear new fruit within us. Another thing I was reading about in, in Woodlands is, um, especially here in Ohio, is the danger of invasive species. You know, it turns out that if, uh, if you bring something in on your boots from far away, sometimes it really likes the soil of this new area. And we have across Ohio these invasive species in our forests and woodlands that are crowding out what naturally would be there. What, was, what is designed to be there, what uh, sustains the life of the animals that usually live in our area. And this is true for us spiritually as well. Um, we've been doing Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We have a, a, a couple different courses going uh, right now. We have a group doing Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And one of the things that uh, Pete Scazzaro talks about is that um, while Jesus is in our hearts, our grandpa is in our bones. This idea that, that we, can be, we can be in this process of spiritual transformation but still be beholden to a lot of the patterns of our family, which are counter-gospel. We can still have a lot of default responses that are not informed by the life of faith, but instead are informed by the family that we grew up in. And these are the invasive species of our hearts. Because we are designed to live in the way that God has created us. We are designed to bear fruit. We are designed for life and love and joy and satisfaction. But all too often, we learn these patterns of behavior from our family. We learn these patterns of behavior from our babysitters. We learn these patterns of behavior from the the groups that we find ourselves in, which lead us to having default reactions that are not the way God has designed us to live. And Jesus recognizes this because this is not a new problem. This is not a 21st century North American problem. This is not a Grove City problem. This is not, um, this is not a problem just for us. This is something that they dealt with Back in the first century, in, uh, in the region of Judah and uh, Galilee and everywhere that Jesus taught and preached during his earthly ministry. So much of Jesus' core teaching, his core message in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Plain, and the final discourse are are designed to bring greater awareness to us to the ways that we have been designed to live and how that sometimes goes sideways. How sometimes the way that our family of origin has taught us the world works isn't actually the way God has designed the world to work. Because when you are a child and you are in the midst of dysfunction, none of us have the self-awareness to ask, why is this situation dysfunctional? We assume it is normal. And that dysfunction becomes normal in our lives. And, and Jesus sees that here. Because it is a dysfunction of the fall that leads to some people being enemies. That leads to animosity against those who are other. We are not designed for an us and them mentality. And that, that's not the way God created us. That is a uh, that is a result of, of being in these fallen communities. 
And Jesus brings this to the forefront. He brings this to our attention. Being good to those who are good to you is not the design. The design is to be good to everyone, whether they are deserving in your mind or not. It's, it's not about protecting your kin group and excluding those who are outside. It is about treating everyone as if they are part of your kin group. Because they are. In God's design for humanity, in God's design for us, in God's design for the kingdom, there is no other. There is no outsider. I mean, this, this whole discussion of, of the, the wealthy receiving no more reward, of, of the poor receiving that reward which they have not, have, not, um, have not received in this life. I mean, Jesus will talk more about this in Luke 16. We'll get to it later. But this separation between those who live lavishly and those who starve is fundamentally a problem that those who live lavishly fail to understand that these people who are starving are their brothers and sisters. Are their parents. Are their children. This is, this is fundamentally what Jesus is talking about. That when we receive blessings from God... We can't hold on to them tightly and exclude those who need our help. We can't say, well, you know, they're not family, so I'm not going to help them. Well, they, they, I, don't, I don't know if they deserve it, so I'm not going to help them. That's, that's not the idea. Like we've, we've said it before here, and it is absolutely true. God's greatest desire is that we would love and trust Him. That instead of putting our trust in what we have, instead of putting our trust in, uh, in what we do, instead of putting our trust in our plans, that we would put our trust in Him. And when our trust is in God, that allows us to live with open hands. It allows us to trust that we don't live in this world of scarcity that the world tells us is reality. But that we live in a world of plenty. That there are people who starve in this world is not a question of if we can produce enough food. It's not. Not even close. I mean, uh, from what I've read, you know, the, the carrying capacity, if we were to you know, maximize the efficiency of our, uh, just the current farms that we have worldwide, we could feed, you know, 15 billion people. Like, we could double the population and still feed people. Like, we wouldn't run out of food. It is not a question of we don't have enough food. question of are we willing to bless those that the sinful patterns that have we have inherited as a result of the fall tell us that those people don't deserve you know I I think with with passages like this, it can become 
it can become frustrating. For us, living here in the United States, um, where, you know, from a global level, almost no one here is poor. Um, I mean, 30% of the world's population lives on $2 a day, right? Like, like even those who are impoverished in the United States by global standards aren't that poor. Now, I mean, there's, there are factors that go into standard of life and difficulty to thrive, and that is all true. So we read this, and we see, woe to the rich. And if we are taking the words of Jesus seriously, that should cause us some degree of concern. Because we are rich. I mean, even, even if we are not wealthy, very few of us miss meals. Very few of us don't have uh, a dry spot to rest our heads at nighttime. So what does it mean for us that Jesus says, woe to the rich, for they've already received their comfort. I mean, it could be that the call for us is the same as the call to the rich young ruler to sell all that we have and follow Jesus. It could be that. But more likely, I think what we are seeing is Jesus is going back to that tradition that we see throughout the Old Testament. Put your trust in the Father, not in what you can accumulate. Our trust, our future, cannot be dependent on our 401ks. It can't be dependent on the equity we have built up in our house. Our future is dependent on a God who loves us. Who loves us so much that we don't have to worry about things running out. We can live generously, both with those who we know and those who we don't know. And so much so, when we live in this generous way, this way that God has designed us to live, because of the results of the fall, it will be so strange and so abnormal to most people that it will bear witness to the goodness of God. A scarcity mentality is an invasive species in our soul. But my guess is that each of us inherited it to some degree from our parents and grandparents. Most of us knew someone who grew up during the Depression and had a, uh, a, a kitchen drawer full of, like, the elastic from underpants and other just nonsensical things that you're my grandma felt like she had to hold on to. Right? This scarcity mentality. I'm going to need it someday. This is, this is how I can protect myself against some bad thing that's going to happen in the future. But Jesus speaks to those gathered around. And he says that the scarcity mentality is an invasive As Christians, we cannot live with a scarcity mentality if we want to grow and mature into the people who God has designed us to be. Because we don't live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world of plenty. We put our trust 
in the God who has the cattle on a thousand hills. We put our trust in the God who loves us and will meet our daily need. And this is a theme that we will track through the Gospel of Luke. That the invasive species of scarcity, that this, this thing that we have inherited from our parents and grandparents and their parents is an invasive species that we need to burn out of our inner selves so that we can create space for the fruit of the kingdom to be born with us. Our second reading today comes from Luke chapter 11. And Luke writes that when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. And then Jesus said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without even knowing it. One of the experts in the law then answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed before the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed before the altar in the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entered. the time of Jesus, there were all sorts of traditions that the Pharisees kept immaculate. That was their thing, was taking the law, doing all these embellishments to it, and keeping those embellishments just perfect. And they took pride in that. They took pride in being able to do all the little non-essential things perfect. They took pride in all of the pious things that they were able to do and have people see them doing. But Jesus' criticism of them consistently comes back to this central idea you have done all of these religious -y and pious things, but they haven't transformed your heart. You have life happening up in the canopy, but there is no light that is creating life at the very center of who you are. 
you aren't being transformed by the religious practice. And this is, um, I mean, these are words that for me personally are, are really, really hard because I am convinced that uh, the right set of disciplines are going to create the, the opportunity for God to transform what's going on within me. And I think that's still true. I, I do believe that we need a certain structure to our lives that creates space for God to work within us. But simply having the structure doesn't guarantee that's going to happen. Simply having that uh, daily Bible reading time doesn't guarantee that it's going to transform our hearts and minds. And I think the, the biggest hidden piece in that is all of the unchecked, unaccounted for invasive species living within us. That we have this whole set of assumptions that we bring into our spiritual practices that have made it so there's not space for the growth that God has designed to happen within us. For the Pharisees, they had all these traditions and all these embellishments, and none of them transformed their hearts. And the same thing can happen for us. We can do all the right things but if we don't have the maturity to pay attention to what we have inherited, to what we assume is normal, even though it might not be, then all of that spiritual practice can help us grow spiritually, but be so immature that we still, that we still find ourselves hurting people and living lives of limited satisfaction and peace. Because we can't grow into full spiritual maturity without also growing in our emotional maturity. Without having an awareness of what we have inherited what we've inherited that reflects the kingdom and what we've inherited that is invasive to the kingdom and that we need to be actively seeking to And it's hard, right? I mean, the, the, no child who grows up in dysfunction recognizes it as dysfunction, right? Like these, these invasive species within us, we don't even recognize them as non-native. It's, it's hard work. It's hard work asking why we respond the way we do to situations. Whether that's been informed by the work of the Holy Spirit within us, or if it's just what we inherited growing up. But we must. If we want to grow in maturity, if we want to bear the fruit of the kingdom, we, ha we must have an awareness of these outside things. So, in my household growing up, um, we were and have been for generations a very achievement-minded family. You, you, know, you go back 
as far as you can remember uh, from the time of, you know, way back to Ulrich Spiker, you know, and the crossing of the Atlantic. I mean, the, the Spiker clan has been very achievement-minded. Any pride that we should feel, any pride that we should feel about our children is a direct result of their level of achievement. Are they reaching the goals that they have set for themselves and that, you know, maybe even more importantly, we've set for them? And as a result of this, my natural sort of inclination is to judge my own worth on achievement and to judge my capacity to respect others on what they're achieving. The problem is this is a counter-gospel sort of vision of the world. God doesn't care what you have done. God loves you in spite of what you've done. Uh, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Uh, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less, right? Like God's love is a constant that is poured out regardless of how successful you are in doing kingdom-shaped things. as these words leave my mouth like it tastes bad because that's not the way I'm wired that's not what I inherited spikers are achievers God loves me because people come to church that's not true God doesn't love us because we keep the disciplines perfectly, but by keeping the disciplines perfectly, we can better learn how to love God. That is true. I mean, and it's, it, for those of you who didn't grow up spikers, this may sound like Greek, and I apologize. But it was until I truly believed that God loves me regardless of what I achieve or what I fail to achieve. I mean, this was a turning point in me being able to experience actual spiritual maturity. And it is an invasive species that keeps trying to creep its way back into me. And one that we continually have to go back in with, you know, the Roundup and Weed Eaters and cut out of there. Because it's really easy to get back into this, this thinking that my identity and my self-worth comes from what I can achieve. And your family very well may have had a different, um, you know, different, different issues that, that are invasive species within you, but it is, we, we must cut them out if we want to experience spiritual maturity. I, I was a 26-year-old a spiritual baby pastoring a church because... I was convinced that God's love for me was based on my achievement. And it's hard work, right? Like the, the work of asking yourself these questions, of thinking hard about the way you grew up, about thinking about the... Um, the, the hidden rules and values of 
of your family unit or, or you know, a, a work environment that really shaped you or, or whatever. Um, but stuff we need to do. If we fail to do it, we will continue to be spiritual babies. It's going to be really hard to create space within us for God to grow the fruit that he wants to, the fruit of the kingdom that can sustain us and sustain our neighbors. But it's what it is to clean the inside of our cup. It's what it is to clean the inside of our cup and create this space that God can can work within us. Our final scripture today comes from Luke chapter 16. And Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham replied, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. These are hard words for us. Because we have it good. Yeah, I, um, I remember when, when this pandemic first hit, um, it was really scary and really bad. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, there have been like 27 global pandemics in recorded human history. And this is the one I would choose. Because this is the one where food is most secure, where I am living in a temperature-controlled house and where I can pull something out of my phone and be entertained endlessly. Living a life that makes Abraham's opulence for wearing purple look like nothing in comparison. This is a text that makes me uncomfortable. And when we are uncomfortable, we have a choice to I mean, and this is true of all feelings and emotions. When we feel something, we have a choice to make. We can push it aside or try to bury it in snow and pretend like it's not there. 
which isn't very mature and usually doesn't work out very well. Or we can give into it fully and allow it to justify any decision we may want to make. Or we can acknowledge its reality that what we feel is real, but what we feel may not be true. So I can feel uncomfortable, and that is real. But it would be inappropriate to just do whatever I think it will take to stop feeling uncomfortable. Sometimes, being uncomfortable is exactly what God wants for. Sometimes the most mature thing we can do is when we read something in the Bible that makes us uncomfortable is to sit with that discomfort. Because it's easy. I can go on YouTube, I can put this passage in, and I can find a video of someone like Joel Osteen telling me that everything's okay. It's easy. There are, there are all sorts of resources out there that we have at the tips of our fingers to give us reasons for this not to make us uncomfortable anymore. But I'm not sure that is the mature response. Instead, I think the best thing we can do with a passage like this is to go ahead and sit in our discomfort. Allow God to work in the midst of that discomfort. I mean, as, uh, as a pastor-type person, what I want to do right now is I want to tell you all the reasons why this shouldn't make you uncomfortable, but I can't. I'm going to be honest, because the reality is this should make us uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable that the rich man whose opulence was defined as eating well and wearing purple found himself in eternal torment. That the poor beggar at his gates that he had disregarded found himself at the right hand of Abraham. This should make us uncomfortable. And we can sit in this discomfort. And we can ask the question of how shall we now respond? You know, the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his rich brothers to warn them about the way they were going. It's uh, um, like the, the image I've, I've always had is um, uh, uh, Jacob Marley in Christmas Carol, you know, come in and, and chains, you know. Shrooge! All right, no Dickens fans, I get it. But this is this is what he wants. He wants this Jacob Marley experience for his brothers to shake them out of their apathy for their neighbor. The connotation here is that the rich man was given all of this blessing and he knew as he looked up 
that the reason why he was experiencing torment is the apathy that he had had for Lazarus. That he didn't care that Lazarus was starving just outside his gates. When we read a text like this, it should make us uncomfortable. And the question that should begin to permeate its way into our prayer life is asking, God, where is my apathy getting in the way of knowing you? What should I be caring about that I don't? Who should I be caring for that I haven't? Where am I holding on tightly to something that you have given to me so that I can share it? Because there's not an easy answer to this text. There's not an easy way to just feel better. There's not a a three-step process to not end up like the rich man. This is where we actually have to know God. This is where we actually have to be receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This is where learning to listen to God becomes vitally important so that we can live in the way he's designed us to live, so that we can experience joy and peace, so that the fruit of the kingdom can grow within us and both sustain us and be shared with those around us. Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll be not, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I feel like these words take on a little different connotation when they're said by Jesus. Jesus understands his ministry as not just being something that went on for three years, 2,000 years ago. Jesus is living in to a larger story that begins at creation, goes through the patriarchs, into the time in the wilderness, into the time as slaves in Egypt, throughout you know, the Davidic kingdom, you know, northern kingdom, southern kingdom being... crushed by the Assyrians, enslaved by the Babylonians. Like, this whole history, Jesus knows that he's a part of. And being a part of it, He knows his role as the ultimate sacrificial. The one who would settle once and for all the Day of Atonement. That would bear the sins of the people and would cast them into the abyss. And Jesus takes our sin and he destroys it. Not so we can coast. Not so we can just sort of bask in the generosity of God. But he does it so that we can receive it and distribute it so that we can be a part of the gospel mission. So that the love that God shows to us can be poured out on our neighbors. So that the work of Jesus on the cross is not just for 
my benefit, but it equips me to love my neighbor. It equips me to bear witness to the grace of God. It equips us to live in a way that is different from the world. It equips us to get outside of the patterns of behaviors of our family of origin and to grow into maturity so that we can bear the fruit of the kingdom that will sustain both us and those all around us. So let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks. That you have chosen us. That you have chosen to be kind and generous, full of grace and power towards us. Lord, for the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable, we pray that you would be with us in the midst of our discomfort. That you would use these passages as an opportunity to grow us in our maturity. To help us put our trust more fully in you. Lord, we thank you that this is not truly a world of scarcity, but a world of plenty. That you do not give your gifts stingy, in a stingy way. But that you pour them out loud. Lord, help us to do the difficult work of identifying the invasive species of our inner selves. Give us the tools to cut it out, burn it out, weed whack it, hit it with Roundup. Whatever it takes so that the soil of our hearts is ready receive the seed of your truth and bear the fruit of your kingdom. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever from generation to generation. We give you thanks. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ go near you to defend you go before you to guide you, go behind you to forgive you, go above you to bless you, and live within you so you may love one another. He lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and even forevermore. Amen. Amen.